Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, What's Old is New Again, photographer Shane Balkowicz uses the wet plate process popular in the mid-19th century. October 4, 2012 is when I took my first wet plate, and um, I just haven't stopped ever since. We'll discuss American Beach in the Jim Crow era. American Beach offered respite and community, but it could not escape the reality of Jim Crow and racial conflict. And we'll talk about bell towers in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Contemporary photographer Shane Balkowicz uses a mid-19th century process to capture images of Seminoles and other Native Americans. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. A style of photography called wet plate photography was developed by Frederick Scott Archer in 1851. A wet plate photograph is made by placing a film base on a piece of glass or metal using collodion and submerging it in a silver nitrate solution to make it light sensitive. It's called wet plate photography because during the process the chemicals on the plate must remain wet and cannot be allowed to dry. In recent years, there's been a small revival of the wet plate photography process. Shane Balkowicz is a photographer based out of Bismarck, North Dakota, where he takes wet plate photographs in his nostalgic glass wet plate studio. He recently donated one of his wet plate photographs to the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The donated portrait features Cheyenne Kippenberger, a member of the Seminole Tribe and Miss Indian World, 2019 through 2021. Shane Balkowicz recently talked with me about his wet plate photography. Well, I was never um, a photographer. I mean, this is a well-known fact about me and the work that I do. Um, I never owned a camera. So back in um, September, probably August of 2012, I saw a, a wet plate online. Didn't know what it was. It was just a photograph of a motorcycle and a couple of people that were fuzzy standing behind it. And I don't know, something drew me in at that point. We think there's only about a thousand of us in the world right now that are actively making, consistently making plates on a consistent basis. So that's, that's not a large number. And I just chased it. I just um, had a camera built, got a lens, didn't even know. I had no idea what, what it takes to make a dark room or whatever happened. I didn't even understand. I'd never been in a dark room before. So here I'm making my own dark room and I had never been in a dark room ever. So it, it was kind of a, a, a lot of trial and error. And um, October 4, 2012 is when I took my first wet plate. And um, I just haven't stopped ever since. The wet plate process, called ambrotype, evolved shortly after the daguerreotype, invented by Louis Daguerre. The invention of wet collodion photography in the 1850s led to the development of ambrotypes, which were similar to daguerreotypes but were quicker and cheaper to produce. Ambrotypes remained popular until the end of the Civil War. My exposures today um, with my natural light studio here, they're about 10 seconds. 
Okay, so this is a very long process. Your iPhone photograph is taking photographs in about one sixtieth of a second. So it takes me 600 times longer to make these portraits in the old process that it does with the digital sensors in modern day phones and cameras. So there's head braces. I have to have a head brace that holds the person's head completely in still. And, and these head braces were around, in, you know, those photographs of Abraham Lincoln. Sitting Bull was the first ever photograph of Sitting Bull was captured here in Bismarck, North Dakota, in the process I practice by Orlando Scott Goff. Photographer Shane Balkowicz has had hundreds of subjects sit for his wet plate photographs, including several famous people. Professional boxer Evander Holyfield, Swedish environmentalist Greta Thunberg, and the first Native American Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, have all been featured in his photographs. Shane's first wet plate photograph was of Ernie LaPointe, the only living great-grandson of the Lakota Sioux chief Sitting Bull. One of Balkowicz's goals as an artist is to capture photographs of a thousand Native Americans for an Ambrotype series. The goal is to capture 1,000 Native Americans in this process. Um, it'll take me about 20 years. And every 250 plates, I've picked my favorite 50, and then I do a book. So volume one, I'm, I'm approaching only 24 plates away from 500 plates. And I've been working on this for about seven years. So I will be working, uh, hopefully volume two will come out this year. So eventually after the 20 years or however long it takes me, 15 to 20 years, I'll have four volumes of books that represent my work. Cheyenne Kippenberger is one of the 1,000 Native Americans featured in Shane Balkowicz's wet plate series. Kippenberger, from Hollywood, Florida, is a member of the Seminole tribe. She was crowned as Miss Indian World in 2019. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, she also served a second year. Shane Balkowicz. People always ask me, well, how do you get all these sitters for your series? And it's all been word of mouth. It all started with the first couple of images and then people like them and then they talk and then people came in because it, it's, you know, you have to earn trust of this community. It's important to earn trust. And in Cheyenne's example, I mean, she flew with her father all the way from Florida to North Dakota to spend the day with me. That is not lost on me. That is a huge honor. So um, she reached out to me. She had, I believe some of her other friends or someone told her about my work. And, you know, she was coming to the end of her reign. Um, she actually had a two-year reign because of the COVID. So she was supposed to, um, you know, only be Miss Indian World for a year. And the way she explained it is they contacted her and said, can you do another year since we're not going to have the ceremony or the pageant again? And she just wanted to do something very special. Her dad said for months she had wanted to contact me and reached out and I said, sure. And so, uh, yeah, I just fit her in and she came in and the rest is history. In Cheyenne Kippenberger's wet plate photographs, she wore a colorful traditional Seminole dress. In one portrait, her hair is elaborately shaped into a fan-like style that her grandmother taught her. So she asked me, what should I wear? And I said, well, how do you want to be seen 500 years from now? But she explained to me that her grandmother would wear her hair like this very commonly. And she wanted to do this, this hair thing. She described it to me and it sounded like this was going to take her an hour or something. And she just went back into the changing room and with a mirror in about three minutes, she had put her hair up like this traditional way. And it was just, it was magical. It was absolutely magical. So yeah, the, so the hair was uh, an important aspect. Um, that particular hairstyle was an important aspect to her. Um, I think during the pageant, she described that she actually demonstrated doing that as well. So she had obviously practiced this many times. And when you look at the plate, it gives it this very unique shape. And, and the fact that it's pay, paying homage to her heritage and her grandmother that wore hair like this, it just was, um, it, it's rather neat. So, but you have to be open and you have to be aware and you have to want to capture these things. So these are thoughtful things that you want to, you want to think about, but it was important to her. So if it's important to her, um, this is a collaboration, it's important to me. So we, we did the plate. 
Even though the subjects of Shane Balkowicz's wet plate photographs are encouraged to wear whatever they want in their portraits, most choose to wear formal clothing or regalia. We're not playing dress up. Some people have this notion that um, I'm going on Amazon or something and buying these outfits or something like that. This is this is formal regalia. When Cheyenne came in, I mean, this was a formal dress that she possesses. And and just like if I was to take your portrait, you were going to come in, you would wear your best dress, right? I mean, you'd, your prettiest dress, the dress that means more. Maybe you'd bring your grandmother's dress in if you had one that was important to you, or you know, you would find something that's significant to you um, for the for this exposure. And it's no different with them. To keep the integrity of this series, I've never introduced a prop or a single garment, a blanket or anything into any of my work. So they, my sitters either bring it in and, and we use it or we can go without. We don't need to. It's called a modern wet plate perspective for a reason. Shane Balkowicz donates many of his photographs to historical societies around the country so that they can be permanently archived and preserved for years to come. The Florida Historical Society's Library of Florida History recently received plate number 3825, from Cheyenne Kippenberger's Ambrotype session in 2021. This doesn't have to be, and I've said this before, it doesn't have to be some huge exhibition celebrating the work that I do here 200 years from now. It, it doesn't have to be that. It has to be one archivist like yourself going in 300 years from now and finding Cheyenne's plate that I have in your possession and then pulling it out of that sleeve and looking at it and just appreciating it for a moment and then turning it over on the back of that plate. It has the date. It has who she is, has fire, which is her Native American name in, in, in Seminole. Um, it has who took the photograph and where was the photograph taken. All the information that you want. And I've got a bunch of historic images here. And I, I know you probably run into this too. We have no idea who, where, when, what, why these images were taken. That has all been solved by me. And it's very important to me that the documentation on the back is so very important because when that archivist looks at it, they have the answers to their questions. You want to know who's in the photograph, who took the photograph, when was the photograph taken, where was it taken? These are all the things that we want when we look at the photographs. Every wet plate that Shane Balkowicz creates has historical significance. That's why he feels a responsibility to preserve them for the future. When you make objects that are going to outlast you, you have to think about where they're going to end up. And that's kind of why I've got this drive to try to place as many plates um, as in many places that I can, because um, I'd hate for them to be discarded or um, they end up on some auction site or something like that. It's not why I'm making these, these images. I'm, I'm trying to document history here and the history of these people. And I think when you make the object, you have a duty. Today, we take more photographs in a single day than were taken in the first 150 years of photography. Every day, millions of digital photographs are taken and then stored on a cell phone or a computer, never to be printed or properly preserved. Shane Balkowicz believes that wet plate photography is powerful because it's so tangible. We take photographs for granted. We take people for granted. These images that I captured today, these are 10 seconds of these people's lives. These are not snapshots. These are 10 second movies. Their, their heartbeats there. They have a, a couple shallow breaths. It's all on the plate. They have maybe a blink, you know, um, Cheyenne probably blinked during that 10 second of exposure. That blink is on that plate. So if you look at this romantically and it's the only way that I do, you know, these are not snapshots of people's lives. These are 10 seconds of their lives that they can never get back. And um, it's transferred. I take that 10 seconds of their life. Just think about all the 10 seconds of our lives that we waste every day that are so insignificant. But when you sit for a wet plate portrait and you transfer that life to that plate, I, I can't think of a better way to spend 10 seconds.
The first volume of Shane Balkowicz's Ambrotype Photograph Series is called North Plains Native Americans, A Modern Wet Plate Perspective. You can watch a documentary about Shane Balkowicz and his work on Amazon Prime. The film is called Balkowicz, B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H. Stay tuned for a future Florida Frontier segment in which I talk with Cheyenne Kippenberger about her experience being photographed by Shane Balkowicz. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, today we take accessibility to the beach for granted, but not everyone always had access to the sand and surf. Going to the beach is practically synonymous with Florida life, but for black Floridians, the beach experience was not always an option. The Jim Crow segregation laws that regulated access to public space designated surf and sand as white areas except in a few specific cases. Going to the beach for a day of pleasure or owning a beach house were experiences associated with white middle-class consumer culture. In most cases, the beach was off-limits for blacks. In 1884, Jacksonville opened one of its six public beaches for black use, but only for one day a week. In the early 20th century, Manhattan Beach became the first black beach resort in Florida when Henry Flagler's Florida East Coast Railway sold parcels of beachfront property to black railroad workers for recreational use. Local trains transported black holiday passengers to Manhattan Beach, and it was especially popular with church groups that headed to the shore after services. In the 1930s, the popularity of Manhattan Beach declined when the trains that had provided transportation for most beachgoers succumbed to the economic ravages of the Great Depression and ended their service. Two new surfside developments during the late 20s and the 1930s provided blacks with ocean resorts for the remainder of the Jim Crow era. Butler Beach, near St. Augustine, was developed by black real estate developer Frank B. Butler, and American Beach was established on Amelia Island by the Jacksonville-based Pension Bureau of the Afro-American Life Insurance Company. And there's a, a popular book about the history of American Beach. There is indeed, and I'm using the book by Marcia Dean Phelps, An American Beach for African Americans, as my source for understanding life on American Beach from 1937 through the 1970s. I just recently read the book for the first time when a friend sent me a copy. It was first published in 1997 and republished in paperback in 2010 by University Press of Florida. 
Phelps grew up going to American Beach in the summertime, and many of the photographs and personal stories make the reader feel as if they also experienced American Beach in its heyday. Like any family story, much of the narrative centers around food and eating. Restaurants, ice cream shops, picnics, and family meals figure prominently in the book with mouth-watering descriptions of specific dishes. In the last chapters, she included a number of seafood recipes to enable everyone to enjoy the taste of American Beach. American Beach traces its origins to 1935 when the Pension Bureau purchased land on Amelia Island near Franklintown, a black community with origins in the Reconstruction era. The purchase was intended to provide recreation opportunities for employees of the Afro-American Life Insurance Company and others who wanted to spend time at the shore. President of the company was A.L. Lewis. Born in poverty, Lewis was a model for the self-made man and became one of the first black millionaires in Florida. His wife, Mary Samus, was the great-granddaughter of Zephaniah Kingsley and his wife, Anna Jai. The first home built on American Beach belonged to A.L. Lewis and was constructed by Willie Rivers. Other homes quickly joined it, and photographs from 1937 show several stately homes along the shore. American Beach soon attracted a diverse crowd of Saturday night revelers, Sunday afternoon picnickers, and week-long family vacationers. By the 1950s, Phelps says, the American Beach was an entrepreneurial dream. The Ocean View Inn and the new A.L. Lewis Motel offered rooms for vacationing families. Evans Rendezvous, El Patio, and Reynolds Sandwich Shop quickly became essential to an American Beach experience. Black vacationers from across the South and throughout the country traveled to American Beach. Many of these tourists were well-known figures in the arts and entertainment world or were important figures in government and business. The majority of beachgoers, of course, were middle class or working class. And Connie, although American Beach was kind of an oasis for the African-American community, there were still many racial issues to deal with, right? Of course. American Beach offered respite and community, but it could not escape the reality of Jim Crow and racial conflict. Phelps does not shy away from the raucous behavior that was part of the life of the beach, gambling, drinking, fighting, drag racing, nor does she shy away from the problems with law enforcement. For most black families headed to the beach, the most likely encounter with the law occurred along the so-called Youngblood Trail, a stretch of road in Nassau County named for Sheriff Herbert J. Youngblood, and it was notorious for speed traps and roadblocks. After 1952, most blacks in the know opted to travel over the MacArthur Toll Bridge and avoid driving through Nassau County altogether. Phelps relates two examples of violent conflict between blacks at American Beach and law enforcement, one in 1950 and the second in 1992, to illustrate the tensions that lay just beneath the surface. The problems of racial strife were not the only issues affecting American Beach. In September 1964, Hurricane Dora struck Amelia Island, destroyed much of the beach property, and rearranged the coast itself. Phelps provides us with a perspective on the effect of Dora on American Beach when she notes that 
residents talk about that hurricane as if it happened last year rather than decades ago. Another change was brewing in 1964 as well. The passage of the Civil Rights Act that summer opened public spaces to blacks, especially restaurants, hotels, and beaches. In what Phelps calls the irony of civil rights, blacks increasingly exercised their options to go anywhere they wanted, and American Beach entered a period of decline. By the 1990s, however, baby boomers who remembered their trips to American Beach began to return, bought beach houses, and restored many of them. It wasn't all sunshine on American Beach, however. The purchase of land and the construction of Amelia Island Plantation Resort left American Beach with less than 125 acres, and the beach struggles to retain its unique place in Florida history. In the preface to the print edition, the reader is reminded that American Beach was more than a playground. It served to remind people of their value and to nurture their histories. In 2010, after 75 years of continuous existence, American Beach celebrated with the grand opening of the American Beach Community Center. Interesting as always. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Anyone who has walked across the University of Florida campus in Gainesville or strolled through Bach Tower Gardens in Lake Wales is familiar with the sound emanating from bell towers. Margot Winnick is an intern from Florida State University and has this report. It's the original heavy metal. If you've ever set foot on a college campus and heard the majestic bells of a bell tower marking the time or playing a tune, you may have been hearing a carillon. An ancient instrument, a carillon by definition, has at least 23 fixed, finely tuned bells. There are fewer than 200 carillons in all of North America and only four in Florida. One of the largest is at the University of Florida, housed in the campus landmark known as Century Tower. It has 61 bells, which can play five octaves, and their rich resonance can be heard for a mile. In addition to marking the quarter hour and the hour, every day during classes, a UF student ascends the 11 stories to enter a small chamber atop Century Tower to play a musical selection. To play the carillon, musicians use a clavier, which has 61 batons that are played by hand and 25 pedals played by foot. Professor of Music at the University of Florida, Laura Ellis, oversees the student carillonors who come from all majors. I don't really recruit per se. So what, what really happens, I believe, is that students are walking around campus and they hear the bells and they just think, I have to do that. This is something that I have to learn how to do. So it becomes sort of um, a research project on that part to figure out what's going on with it. Is there somebody up there? And how do I learn to play the instrument? That's the main way that I think students get interested. And if they're interested enough to dig in and find out what's going on, that really proves to me they're interested enough to start playing. 
Professor Ellis, who also climbs the 194 steps to play the bells at Century Tower, explained that since the carillon is a rather traditional musical instrument, the student musicians practice concert repertoire. But there are times when a more popular music selection can be played, such as for certain holiday events on campus, including a Halloween and a Valentine's Day concert. These occasions give students some leeway to compose and arrange some more recognizable selections. The primary thing is to learn the concert repertoire, but of course we want to play some things that people recognize. One of the things that's difficult about uh, playing pop tunes is A, there isn't a whole lot of harmonic interest in it, and also melodically there isn't much there. I mean, a lot of the tunes, if you think about it today, repetitive lyrics on kind of the same note, it just doesn't give you a lot of interest. So if, if one can find songs that have some lyricism to it, pop songs work. But you have to pick and choose what's going to work. Some just don't work at all. There are only a few carillons in Florida, so her more dedicated students sometimes go on to play at the others in the state or elsewhere. One of her students is Wade Fitzgerald, who spent time after graduation doing a fellowship at Bock Tower Gardens in Lake Wales, which may be Florida's best-known carillon. It has 60 bells. Bock Tower was one of the first instruments in the United States that put a carillon in a concert setting, said Professor Ellis. There, Fitzgerald got to work on some arrangements for some more well-known songs. Yeah, I've done a lot of pop song arrangements. I did, uh, I won't back down. That's one of the first ones I did because uh, it's a little bit of a school song. You know, Tom Petty is very popular at UF because he grew up in Gainesville. During the pandemic, Fitzgerald got to play regular recital concerts that were carried on the Facebook page for Bach Tower Gardens. Bach Tower is one of the finest carillons in the world. It's um, just a spectacular instrument, not just the quality of the bells and the console, but uh, you know the location. You can't beat it. It's acres of beautiful gardens around it. It's hard to find a prettier concert hall than that. So yeah, that was just a really special time to you know get to play there for so long. And uh, that gave me a lot of time to, you know, play a lot of pop music. There's a bit more freedom there because um, I think they have permissions to play a lot of popular music. And so, yeah, I did a bit of arranging different pop songs while I was there because it's just something I enjoy doing. You know, if there's a song I really like, I want to see if I can make it work on the bells. Not all songs work, though, because it's, you know, such an unusual and kind of temperamental instrument. You have to, you know, be kind of selective about which songs you even attempt it with. Before the pandemic, there was actually a Florida Carillon Festival, with caroloneurs performing a program at several of the Florida sites. In Europe, carillons are located in a market square so that music can accompany the market setting. According to Fitzgerald, this ancient instrument is gaining new interest all the time. It's sort of at an a interesting crossroads and people, you know, a lot of people kind of see it as a dying art, but really it's kind of growing because, uh, you know, although the instrument's been around for maybe 400 or so years, really only in the last century or so have they really made huge leaps in the consoles and the action, making it sort of more manageable to play and expanding the range of the instrument. 
So in the last century, it's become much more versatile. And, uh, you know, it's been attracting more composers to try writing for it. There are also a lot of students studying this instrument now. So um, I think it has a bright future and uh, it's definitely a, a growing art, not a dying one. For Florida Frontiers, this is Margot Winnick. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers this week comes from Holly Baker, Connie Lester, and Margo Winnick. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.